We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Pat Sajak has decided he's going to uh, walk away from the wheel and 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 I guess relax. <laughs> I think the schedule is pretty easy. Uh, we'll ask Bill Brio about that. Uh, anyway, I thought maybe they'd take Vanna White and move her over, but no, they've announced a new host for uh, the Wheel of Fortune, and it is Ryan Seacrest, which you think about it, that's a pretty natural fit. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Bill Brio, TV critic and author, and here now. Bill, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing uh, fine, Scott. How are you doing? So far, so good. Uh, this seems like a pretty nice fit from Mr. Bland to Mr. Bland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, they went with the uh, safe choice. I mean, Brian Seacrest is a terrific uh, host, uh, you know, yep. an American Idol all those years and morning shows, everything else. So, you know, radio guy, he's just so professional, but it is a very safe choice. And I kind of like your idea. They should have let Vanna do it for a year. What the hell? Let's hear from her, right? Yeah, I mean, I know she's done it a couple of times, I guess, as, as fill-in or when they were in a pinch or what have you. But uh, this, and that was my first reaction, the Vanna. Um, but then hearing about Ryan Seacrest, this, that does kind of seem like a natural fit, doesn't it? It does. You know, he's just the guy that's probably next in line for any kind of job like that, you know, when there's an opening yeah. and uh, he's uh, proved his versatility. So and you, you know what? You're right. It's not brain surgery. It's either, you know, you spun and you landed on a letter or you didn't. So he'll, he'll be able to handle it. So what about Vanna White? Where does this leave her? Does she stay in for a while? Does she stay for a year or so to help bridge the gap? And then they bring in someone else. Uh, what are your thoughts? I think that your suggestion is probably right on the nose that, I, I, you know, the people that produce this show also produce Jeopardy. There was such a fiasco when they tried to bring a host into that show a couple of years ago to replace mm. Alex Trebek, the legend, and they bungled it, you know, and I think uh, Vanna provides some continuity here. And that's probably why they went with the safe choice as well. They didn't want to have a runoff between a bunch of people, have some, producer come out of nowhere and try to steal the job so uh yeah give it to seacrest <laughs> uh and i understand vanna white now wants more money well you know uh why, why not? not i mean it's it's a lot of money for what she does but people love vanna and uh she's 10 years younger than Sajek, so uh why not uh let her keep keep spinning um but it isn't, uh, yeah, I mean, she could be replaced. I don't hope she doesn't get too cocky with the demands. Let her keep spinning. Boy, that's you're, you're, you're just beautiful, Bill, the way you handle these things. Uh, so talk about the schedule. What is it like to host this show? Generally, they, they shoot shows like this, like uh, they come in a couple of days a month. And uh, they'll shoot five in a day, you know, that they just bang, 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 shoot off the episodes. Mm. They need to get 20 to fill the month. So, you know, you're looking at maybe five, four days work a month 
maybe five if it rains. You know, like it's it's a pretty good <laughs> schedule, Scott. I think you and I would jump at it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the, the it's not overtaxing. And Seacrest has so many other jobs, but he'll be able to juggle it uh, with this schedule for sure. And when you think about this, this it's perfect for him because he has other special projects on the go. This is an easy gig he can use as a base. Yeah, he does the New Year's Eve show that he took over several years ago now on ABC. Uh, but he's also, I believe, he's still on the radio in, in the mornings mm-hmm. in the L.A. market, at least. Um, and, uh, yeah, so he's it's a wonder he's not hosting Dancing with the Stars now. You know, like he, he really uh, has done a lot of these kind of gigs when there's a vacancy. Uh, many have talked about uh, traditional TV, where it's going, la, la, la. But these two game shows, part of the Merv Griffin Enterprise, I believe, from way back when, have still remained successful. That accurate? Oh, is it ever? Scott, Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, aside from football, are the most watched programs on network television in, mm-hmm. in the United States, at least, and probably in Canada as well. You got to wonder what Merv Griffin is thinking about this as he's watching down. <laughs> well, uh, Merv did all right. He made a fortune just from the uh, think music for when people on Jeopardy are trying to come up with the answer. But, uh, yeah, you know, such a brilliant idea. Both these shows are so simple, and um, they're just mesmerizing. Uh, the thing we'll miss with Sajak, though, you know, he had an impish kind of thing happening there. He, he, he was a comedian. Um, and so you, you kind of waited for him to do something yeah. funny now and then. Uh, the bar isn't set super high, but you wonder if Seacrest, rather than another comedian, would, will be able to uh, hit those marks. Yeah, Sajak had a very dry sense of humor. Yeah, he sure did. Bill Brio with his TV critic and author, Ryan Seacrest, the new host of Wheel of Fortune. Bill, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Uh, the latest from Sabrina, uh, Sabrina Maddow. Uh, three years of Olivia Chow will push voters to the right. That's in the National Post. Torontonians will be even angrier and open to a conservative candidate with a populist bent. To talk more about all of this, the author of that, pre, uh, of that piece, columnist with the National Post, Sabrina Maddow, and is with us now. Sabrina, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me. So uh, a lot have been a lot has been made, Sabrina. Of uh, we've uh, in Toronto, there's an NDP uh, mayor, there's a conservative provincial government, and a liberal federal government. How are they all going to get along? Yet we've seen the prime minister and the premier do that. Is there any reason to believe we can't, with a mayor, do this with all uh, the major, a biggest city in Toronto being NDP, and then the rest being what it is? Ultimately, I think all levels will get along. Like you just said, um, the provincial government under Ford's conservatives have been able to get along actually quite well with the federal liberals, and he's very close with Christia Freeland. He's shown himself to be open to uh, working with people from all political stripes, and I think that Olivia will also be on that same page. It helps that the number one issue for voters... um, for all levels of government is housing affordability and the housing crisis. And that's an issue that the only way to solve it is to have all three levels working together. So there is one goal that I believe they all share um, and we'll all benefit from improving. Uh, and more economic issues than probably, um, uh, well, uh, more economic issues, the common denominator bef- between all three of these parties. Uh, Olivia Chow, especially coming out of a pandemic with the city of Toronto and the deficit that what it is, no matter who takes over, this is a massive mountain to climb. 
Absolutely. It's a tall task. Um, like you said, the city is not in a good place with its budget. And at the same time, it's struggling. It's transit struggling, the downtown core, housing, like law enforcement, house, um, homeless shelters, everything. There's a lot that needs to be done. And the first question is always how will this get paid for and how do we get the book straight so i expect that well it should be one of the first things olivia needs to tackle uh you wrote in your piece that uh, this is going to uh push everyone towards the right by the time her term is over why do you think that what are your thoughts i think it presents an opening for a small c conservative mayor the next time around uh especially if she's unsuccessful and isn't able to improve all the things that we were just speaking about especially in this race there wasn't a conservative option that was able to capture voters excitement and we've like in toronto we've seen conservative mayors before so we know voters are open to that But this time around, there wasn't anyone really speaking, especially to economic populism and all those affordability issues around housing, inflation, groceries, transit again. Um, And no one was hammering home that issue every single day on the campaign trail. We saw the conservatives focusing much more on law and order. Uh, Do you think that means we could be heading uh, back towards the center? Uh, We live in the extremes right now, it seems, on either side. Does this mean moving towards the center? I actually think not. uh, Because there are so many crises going on at once and people's happiness, it shows up in polls, is lower than ever. People really want change, and the center Mm -hmm. often represents the status quo. So I think that voters are more likely to continue going for one side of the spectrum or the other. Uh, You don't believe that the liberals, which we always thought of as the left of center party, have gone too far to the left, especially federally, with their relationship with the NDP? They've definitely moved further to the left. uh, And I think that's been in response to I was just talking about people are hungry for change. And Trudeau Mm. came to office selling change. Now, I would argue that hasn't been successful. Uh, and because voters are dissatisfied and want change, they're pushing themselves further and further left. Uh, Many are talking about what Doug Ford said in regard to Olivia Chow. If she gets elected, obviously she did. And then, you know, after uh, everything is over and the polls close and the next day, yeah, yeah, we're all going to work together. Does that, do you see any tension there whatsoever? Or referring back to the days of Jack Layton, who was very much seemed to be able to bring everybody together. Do you think, do you see Olivia Chow being like a Jack Layton in that respect? I think she has the potential to be, especially with a premier like Ford, who, again, has shown himself willing to work with others. And the statements he made before she was voted in, I mean, they're both politicians who have been around the game for decades. uh, So they understand how the game works. And sometimes public statements are made. And then when it's in in your interest, you do a different thing the next week. Uh, So I expect that they will at least make efforts to get along and probably will at at the outset. Um, We'll see if they run into a roadblock later down the road. Uh, As well as economics, a lot of social issues in Toronto as well. Uh, Many on the left now potentially have their dream mayor, their dream candidate. Uh, Will there be a lot of pressure on Olivia Chow to make good on a lot of those social uh, promises and, and, and give hope back to Toronto, as she put it? Absolutely. Expectations are extremely high on the left. Um, They feel that this is their chance and there's going to be big changes and the city's going to be turned around. And I think there's um, 
a likelihood that they might be disappointed. Um, first of all, the challenges are just so huge that it's questionable whether really whoever got into the office is going to make that sort of quick impact that voters want to see. Uh, but also, Olivia has never released um, a lot of campaign specifics. So there's this vagueness in what she will actually do over the next three years. Uh, what do you think the first, uh, say, top three priorities are for her? What is going to, to, I guess, bring her into the news cycle in in the next little while? The first couple of issues, do you think? I think commitments on housing will be number one. Um, she talked about potentially raising property taxes, so whatever she decides to do that with that will be big. And I would think it also has to be transit, whether that's dealing with the issues surrounding the gardener or the TTC or both. Um, big decisions have to be made there. Uh, you talked about property taxes. Uh, many have said that traditionally uh, taxes in the old city of Toronto are incredibly low, dating back to you know decades, decades, decades uh, ago. Uh, does that balance out when home ownership changes, or is that a, a source of revenue, do you think, a target of revenue for, for the new mayor? Um, she said it will be a target, and I believe it will be, and I think a lot of voter, voters on the left support that and the people that brought her into office. Also, she'll be in talks with the federal government trying to get more funding directed at the city. And I think it would be hard for any federal government to say, okay, we're going to give you what will end up being tens, if not hundreds of millions more dollars when voters across the country then look at Toronto and say, hey, but their property taxes are so much lower than what we're paying. And yet now we're giving all this extra funding to them. So that will be something she has to look at, I'm sure. What do you see for the future of Ontario Place? Will the new mayor change any of that vision? It sounds like she's hoping to. Uh, She had Mm. mentioned in her victory speech that she wants to keep it public, and I think that her voting base also wants to see it used as a park or public space, not a spa. But we'll see whether she's able to negotiate that with uh, Premier Ford, as he seems pretty set on the current path. Sabrina Matto with us, columnist with the National Post, and the latest in there, uh, three years of Olivia Chow will push voters to the right. Sabrina, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It is back this year, bigger and better than ever. Supercrawl, 15th anniversary of this year. Think about that. Uh, Supercrawl organizers today unveiled the musical lineup for the 2023 uh, Free Festival Weekend, which takes place September 8th to 10th. 2023 along James Street North in downtown Hamilton. To talk more about all of this, Tim Potasik is with us, co-owner of Sonic Onion Records, Super Crawl Productions, Because Beer Festival, Mills Hardware, Bridgeworks. He is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great. Thank you. 15 years, Tim. Did you ever think you'd go this long? <laughs> well, time does seem to fly, Scott. Uh, but yeah, we hoped we'd go this long, and here we are. So uh, when you started this, what was your vision? Uh, and you just said, you, yeah, you hoped to go for 15 years. So you were, you were looking for uh, something in, in the long run. But how or has it? What was the vision year one? What is it now? Has it changed much? I mean, it completely evolved. Year one, total experiment. Let's just try to do something downtown, see what happens. And then from there, it evolved into its second and third year. We took a little bit more. A little bit more time to plan, uh, spent a little bit more money, and then basically evaluated as things were going. But by the time we'd hit like year three, and it, uh, we knew we were on something quite great, and we knew that we could evolve it even bigger. And then it turned into a long, like some having some long-term planning, like looking 
three to five years out and knowing that this is something that we would continue to do and hopefully we could get the support to do it. You know, you brought something up that I almost forgot because it has been so long, Tim, and that is how this was about the downtown. This was about the city. This was about bringing people back. This was about revitalization at the beginning. Now it just seems that that was so far away. Yeah, but revitalization continues. And, you know, I think we we're in a weirdly unique position now over last year and this year that we're trying to revitalize again, you know, like cities evolve. And I think, you know, we really got, we really got kicked in the, you know what, uh, during COVID and downtown yeah. has taken a bit of a beating and it's got a, it needs that energy to bring it back again too. So I'm happy to be there and to continue to do that and uh, help it evolve into the future. Good point. What's the 15th anniversary? What does that entail? Any new vision due to that? Uh, just some very unique performances, I think. We have some really cool things that are quite different, uh, mixing it up and bringing back a couple headliners from previous years. Our intention was to actually bring back all, like all the bands would be headliners that have mm. played previously, but it was, it just didn't like, you know, that evolution, yeah. that thinking changed and then we were because it's the 50th anniversary of hip-hop we're like okay we need to do a saturday night hip-hop so saturday Mm -hmm. main stage is all urban and hip-hop artists from hamilton and uh, across canada so we just did some unique just different unique programming and things that we wouldn't have normally done which i think is like we would have in the past we would never had a whole stage that was just hip-hop We'd sprinkle mm. it into different stages, but now with the anniversary of the genre, we thought it's a perfect opportunity to do that. When you see how far you've come after 15 years, you were just talking about the expansion of hip-hop and how you're giving that a whole night this time. Where do you see this going? What, what, what's your vision now for the next 5, 10, 15 years? Well, we always like to evolve, so we want to try to find always find those unique elements. I mean, we're a discovery festival. We've always been a discovery festival, so we want to keep that mandate and continue to push that forward. We're going to offer more shows outside of the festival weekend. That's definitely an evolution of things that we have been mm-hmm. doing, and we're going to continue to do more. Uh, maybe there'll be an evolution of the festival on the street. We did try the Thursday one year. And it was successful, but it was also really challenging. Um, but the city hmm. is more open to us, like closing roads more often. So potentially we could look at like doing, you know, adding a day, changing hours, adding more performances. It's all a matter of budget and how, you know, how hard we want to push the envelope with respect to what we're doing. But we have, we're very stable. Things are very good. And we like, we, we really like where we're at from a, a logistics perspective so it's just adding these really cool tweaks and we get the opportunities we've got to jump on them and bring them to does, Hamiltonian. does it necessarily have to get bigger tim or is it for you about getting better it's about getting better and evolving i mean it is quite big and the yeah. reality is like we, we have nowhere left to not that we don't have anywhere left to go we can do side street activations and we have been evolving to do that so that will allow the footprint to grow a little bit uh, we can't really go beyond, you know, King and Main Street to yeah. the other side of James. It just doesn't really make sense logistically. It splits the festival up, and it sort of splits the vibe a little bit, too, and, and it's challenging for logistics for the city. So, you know, from a footprint perspective, it's going to be pretty close to what it is. But from the evolution perspective of what we're able to bring, that will always continue to move the bar.
All right, I just got less than a minute left here, Tim. What sort of talent do you have coming in for the 15th anniversary? Give us some headliners. Uh, social scene and flatliner, so it's kind of like an indie rock, punk rock Friday night. Uh, Shad, Bad, Bad, Not Good on the Saturday uh, on the hip-hop side. We have some incredible locals that are headlining. Rita Shirelli is mm. bringing a super group together. Steve Strongman will also be bringing back the Hamilton superstars, so a bunch of different, like, unique uh talented voices that will be uh playing alongside him and others and um rain and chantelle curviatic to Hmm. close out sunday so it'll be kind of like a really cool mellow great uh closing so really excited on that side of things some incredible art installations this year our art committee did a stellar job amazing fashion zone again so drag shows fashion shows dance performances and then a really very unique performance uh, theater performance from quebec that we're bringing in so uh, lots of interesting things to do on top of food trucks and hundreds of craft vendors 15th edition of super crawl uh september 8th and 10th along james street north downtown hamilton tim potasic with his co-owner of sonic onion Records, super crawl productions because beer festival mills hardware and bridge works it is going to be bigger and better than ever this year tim as always thanks so much for the time good luck cheers when there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Orange, the ambulance helicopter people, uh, Orange is bringing a new critical care land ambulance garage base to Hamilton. It is aimed at supporting the transfer of critically ill patients around the Golden Horseshoe opening up this fall. Uh, This will be a ground ambulance, not the helicopters that you're likely used to seeing. The ambulance base, which will be co-located with Critical Ontario, uh, will will act as a center for operations for uh, critical care patients and land ambulances that will service the city as well as surrounding areas located at 1725 Upper James Street. Let's bring in Wade Durham, Chief Operating Officer, Paramedicine with Orange N here now. Wade, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Very well. uh, Happy to be here. So what is the role of this new base? Uh, What is it supposed to do? What's it designed to do? Yeah, no, for sure. So actually, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, Scott, in terms of when people when people see orange or think orange, they think of the, the helicopter coming in to uh, land on seas or highway accidents. But that's only a small portion of our call volume. Most of our volume is actually transporting uh, very sick patients between uh, facilities for a higher level of care for diagnostic testing. And that's the purpose of the, uh, the new uh, critical care land ambulance that would be stationed in, in Hamilton. So critical care different than a typical paramedic ambulance situation? Yeah, for sure. So our uh, critical care paramedics are, are the most highly trained paramedic in, in Ontario or even in Canada for, for that matter. And, and the intent of the critical care line ambulance is to transport those patients between facilities and, and not require like the, uh, the nurses and the physicians and the respiratory therapists to mm-hmm. go with the patient between facilities. So the critical care paramedics can, can come in and accept care right at the ICU and maintain that level of care to the, to the receiving ICU. So again, it's keeping both the, both the specialty people in the hospitals as well as keeping your local land ambulances in the city and not having to, to leave the city so they can respond to, to 911 where, where they're needed. Uh, so obviously this is a more specialized uh, form of care. And again, not to uh, tax what the, what the regular uh, staff is doing. Is this more of a transfer situation or uh, would you be called to emergency scenarios? 
No, we won't. Uh, they won't typically call us for for the on scene like nine one one calls. Those are right. typically uh, the, the municipal service. Now we have responded if there's a, if there's a multi casualty accident, like right. some, a significant event where local resources are depleted, then absolutely we'll we'll respond. Or obviously, if if we, if we come across a scene, or we will obviously stop and, and assist and, and and transport or call nine one one as as needed. But yeah, we, we're typically reserved for those high acuity inter facility calls. So not necessarily involved with what the say the orange helicopters are doing. No, although they're trained, they're trained to the same level. They're all critical care paramedics. But yeah, like mm. uh, like you mentioned, the helicopters are typically used for for on scenes. Although the helicopters will also do inter facility transports as needed. Um, but uh, no, the, the CCLA will be uh, essentially reserved for for inter facility calls. So there are basically two types of paramedics: your, your regular paramedic and then a critical care paramedic. Is that accurate? Yeah, uh, typically. So your municipal paramedics, uh, most of them are, are primary care paramedics. So as soon as you finish your uh, two years of uh, college, you become a primary care paramedic. And then you can go on to be an advanced care uh, land paramedic, which is a, an additional year of training. And then those that wish to continue on to the critical care level would come to Orange and we would uh, run them through a full critical care program, which is about an additional 18 months of uh, intense uh, training. Uh, obviously, over time, we've heard of ambulance shortages in the area, uh, obviously not directed to critical care, but just standard process and such. Will this help alleviate that by, as you mentioned earlier, uh, keeping those those paramedics on the ground servicing the city as opposed to transferring? Yeah, no, absolutely. And like, like we talked about earlier, uh, right now, uh, the, the local land service sometimes have to go into a, a, a hospital in, in Hamilton and, and pick up a patient needing to go to Toronto. And they'll, they'll take, obviously, nurses and physicians out of that facility and transport. And so that unit is, is out of service while they transport that patient down to uh, Toronto and then obviously uh, hand over uh, the care uh, of, the, of the patient to the receiving centre and then return to the local area. So that asset could be out of service for for half a day in certain cases. So the intent of the, the orange CCLA is obviously to alleviate that, to, to take on that, that, that burden and, uh, and transport those, those patients, uh, obviously thereby keeping uh, local uh, EMS uh, in the city. How long is it going to take to get this facility up and running on uh, Upper James? Yeah, so construction is going to start uh, July 10th. Uh, it's anticipated right now that construction on the main building uh, and that we have to build a, a three-bay garage will be completed uh, mid, uh, mid-August, mid and we're anticipating uh, being up and running uh, September 1st. Wade Durham with us, Chief Operating Officer of Paramedicine with Orange. Orange bringing a new critical care land ambulance garage base to Hamilton aimed at supporting the transfer of critically ill patients around the Golden Horseshoe. Wade, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. We've been talking a lot of late about the housing situation, which has just seemed to have skyrocketed uh, during or post-pandemic, rather, after the pandemic. And this is going on virtually across the country, no matter what town, city, or what have you uh, you're dealing with. It, it is an issue that is, is just accelerated in a post-pandemic world. And, and Michelle Baird, Director of Housing Services for the City of Hamilton, hosted a very well-public-attended con- consultation uh, yesterday, touching on what to do with an estimated 100 homeless encampments across the city. Uh, quote, there was a feeling that engagement needed to be broader, that it was time to listen to the whole community, she said at the opening on Tuesday night. Michelle Baird, Director of Housing Services for the City of Hamilton, here now. Michelle, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
Yes, I am. Thanks for having me, Scott. First of all, kudos for doing this. These things can get really out of hand, and and um, and and way to go for for again just opening up more public consultation on this. Did you learn anything? What do we learn from this uh, from this meeting? So through this meeting and through the previous meeting, Scott, as well as through the engagement to date, I think we are getting a sense of where people are in the community, and more importantly. I think that we're hearing people's stories from individuals who are personally impacted as a result of uh, the housing crisis and homelessness overall. So truly trying to better understand what it is that the community is looking for, both to meet the needs of people in encampment, but also what does our city want? What do we want encampments to look like overall, knowing that we're in a place that unfortunately encampments aren't going to go away. Uh, obviously, we need a long-term solution, and that is housing. That takes time. But what do we do about this situation right now, especially as the winter months are approaching? Encampments are fine in the summer. What happens when the cold weather gets here? So what we're looking at, if we go the route of sanctioned encampments, for example, we're looking for ways where we can provide uh, heating in some way, perhaps opportunities to bring people inside. How do we offer more drop-in opportunities than we do right now? All of that work around what winter response looks like in the city is coming back to council um, in September. But before that, in August, coming forward with some recommendations around how we deal with encampments overall. You're absolutely right. Housing is the long-term solution, in particular housing with supports for some individuals. They do need some supports to ensure sure they're successful in housing uh, but you know it takes some time to build housing for sure and we're in the meantime we do have um, an issue before us that we do need to meet the needs of individuals who are finding themselves unhoused so we are in a place where urgently we want to find ways that we can bring um, running water into parks bring hydro what have you and and be able to provide services for those individuals who right now are unfortunately not receiving them. Uh, what about, uh, you know, we saw during, you know, we've heard uh, some people have brought up the use of schools, schools that aren't being used, school buildings that aren't being used anymore. Um, uh, also, we remember during the height of the pandemic when there was the situation in hospitals, there were field hospitals, temporary field hospitals that were constructed. Is any of this an option? So I can tell you that we've looked at all of those options. So I know there was lots of questions around schools. We have successfully used uh, schools and we, uh, you know, even as recently we used the old Cathedral High School, it was both a men's shelter and ultimately a female shelter while we uh, built some long-term solutions there. So we've used old schools for sure. Uh, Saint uh, Sir John A. McDonald, of course, continues to be brought to the table. Unfortunately, that one's not a school that we can take advantage of in its current condition. However, we are looking at those kinds of things as well as what other vacant or unused sites might exist in the uh, city overall. So looking at all of those options and where we can locate them, including potentially uh, you, you know, the project to put some tiny shelters in place. So, so none of those options are off the table. Um, uh, do you see this as a short-term problem or do you see this as the new normal? In other words, is there going to be a solution and the encampments are eventually gone and pick up whenever there's a, you know, a problem, an issue, what have you? Or is this the new norm that we're going to start seeing, do you think? 
Well, unfortunately, because the solutions are going to take some time to place, if we think about housing or supportive housing, it takes some time to make those things happen. And encampments right now really are as a result of a number of issues. It's a it's a complex problem in our community and beyond, and the reasons are the same. And when we think about the opioid epidemic, uh, so incomes are just um, not keeping pace with the cost of living right now. Uh, the exacerbated issues around mental health, these are issues that aren't going to go away overnight for sure. And so when we look at this, we don't see this as a permanent long-term solution. However, we would expect that this will um, be an issue that we face for the next, you know, year to two for sure, as we try to build some of those permanent solutions. And even at that, I, I don't know that we're going to be in a place that we don't have encampments at that point in time. Um, we do see some seasonality within encampments, even right now, but certainly it's not a problem that's going away and it's worsening before it improves. Uh, is there normally a set number, roughly, of people who are unhoused in any given time in the city? And this is obviously drastically increased. Um, do you see where housing will drastically bring that down in the in the immediate future? So we have approximately right now we have just over sixteen hundred individuals in the city who are uh, experiencing homelessness. And that number has been fairly consistent since about 2021. The difficulty right now is that the number is growing a bit because we don't have places to move people. And we're seeing that the amount of time or length of time that people spend in emergency shelters is lengthening. So again, these are problems. Um, the number continues to increase when we think about those that are truly unsheltered. So those living in encampments, unfortunately, it's about 165. And that for us is um, is a peak right now. We've not had that high of a number before. And that number has increased over the past couple of months. And we anticipate we'll see that number continue to increase. Uh, obviously, this isn't just a Hamilton problem, Michelle. We've no. seen it in, in not only just big cities, but smaller towns as well, right the way across the country. Uh, it reminds me sort of the healthcare situation. It, it was the same right the way across the country. Uh, can we learn anything from those other centers, those other cities? Is there, a, is there a national solution here of some sort, since it appears to be a national problem? So we have been looking at other communities for sure, looking at what's been working or not working or at minimum what's been tried. We know, for example, that Halifax is one of the cities in Canada uh, that has sanctioned encampment sites and sites with services. We know Waterloo, just nearby, has uh, built some tiny shelters that they're, they've placed on a sanctioned site. And so looking at what their learnings are, as well as learnings even beyond Canada. And that's part of the council direction for us is to go away and look at what others have done around encampments, what's working. At this point, we're even looking where there's incremental improvement. We know there's no solution that's going to be, you know, the be all and end all overnight for our community. No other community has found that either. But looking at what others are doing and what solutions can we put in place in Hamilton to continue to make incremental positive change. Michelle Baird with us, Director of Housing Services, City of Hamilton, trying to tackle the homeless situation uh, and encampments throughout the city and find a solution, at least temporarily. Michelle, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You might remember what was happening in Russia.
over the course of the weekend, or, or maybe not, and, and many are still trying to figure it all out, when uh, the Wagner uh, group of missionary, uh, mercenaries rather, um, upset and heading towards Moscow with a, uh, a, a load of soldiers in tow, and uh, it looked like there was a civil war about to break out, and then Saturday it, it all changed, and uh, the mercenaries turned around and retreated, and we now here are in Belarus along with their leader. How does that change things, and how do we move forward from this? Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, and the Monk School, University of Toronto, and here now. Jack, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you're well, too. So, Jack, thanks so much. Uh, how, how do we view this now, after you've had a couple of days to digest this? What's your take from this? Well, in one sense, this is sort of the logical uh, outcome of the way that Putin has governed. He has quite deliberately tried to divide and conquer and pit his subordinates against each other so that it would be hard for opposition to uh, to come together against him. And he's pitted the Wagner Group against the Defense Ministry and the regular army to some extent. And uh, the Wagner Group was uh, bore the brunt of the casualties in the Battle of Bakhmut. Uh, Mr. Uh, Prigozhin has been increasingly uh, uh, unbuttoned in his comments about what he sees as the shortcomings of the way Putin is running the war, the way that the defense minister and the head of the general staff have been running the war. And finally, he uh, he decided to gamble on what uh, what is really a uh, was was really an obvious uh, attempted coup. What's interesting is that both he and Putin looked into the looked over the brink and uh, and blinked. Uh, Prigozhin uh, retreated after coming very close to Moscow, and Putin uh, uh, pardoned Prigozhin uh, and allowed him to escape, at least for now, with his life. So uh, that's it's it's uh, it's an interesting situation, uh, one that is in some ways uh, still to play out. Uh, the group and its leader are now in Belarus. They have welcomed them. What is their role there? Well, that's unclear. Personally, I think that while individual members of the Wagner Group may have been uh, recruited into the uh, the regular Russian army, uh, Prigozhin and uh, and those closely tied to him are uh, are uh, probably not going to live terribly long, given Putin's way of dealing with uh, potential adversaries and real adversaries. So why would he let him go off to Belarus and not just, um, uh, well, why would he do what he did? Or, or is, you know, everything's okay, and then, as you say, come in the back door and all of a sudden he disappears or is poisoned or what have you? Well, the open uh, the open conflict that, uh, that looked as if it was brewing would have been hard to predict. And I think Putin was reluctant to gamble on that. I mean, on on the one hand, there's the fact that the, uh, the Wagner Group troops came uh, very close to uh, to Moscow without uh, without anybody uh, obstructing their progress. On the other hand, they weren't uh, joined by an awful lot of uh, people. Most uh, most of the Russian public, and this is part of Putin's strategy as well, is relatively apathetic politically. And in a coup, most people neither join the plotters nor openly oppose them. They keep their heads down and wait to see which way the wind's blowing. Hmm. That's what's happened here, and I think uh, both. 
both Prigozhin and Putin looked at the, uh, the possibility of open conflict. Neither one was sufficiently confident of his chances to, uh, to gamble on, uh, on uh, the actual loss of blood that that would, that would entail. So how are Russian citizens viewing this? For the longest time, um, they were convinced this was just a, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, was just a military operation. Obviously, the, the state controls the media and such. But once you see tanks coming in and out, that's a different story. How, how, are the Russian, how is the Russian citizenry uh, digesting this? It's tough to quantify public opinion in Russia because people will uh, will routinely lie to pollsters because they won't think their responses will be kept confidential. Uh, but uh, it does look from the fact that uh, there was no uh, no clear rallying around uh, around Putin that uh, at the very least much of the Russian public is uh, weary of the war. Does not does not find the official version of what's going on particularly compelling, and is uh, is reluctant to uh, take any risks on the regime's behalf. Uh, is Putin weaker now? May others try to overthrow him? That is a distinct possibility. He is weaker now, or rather, his uh, his underlying weakness has been exposed. Uh, he 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 may in fact try to preempt any possible further coup attempts by doubling down on his strategy of repression. He may adopt a harder line with domestic dissidents. He may become even more paranoid in terms of dealing with potential sources of opposition. What does this mean for Ukraine? Well, it's, uh, it, it's, it's obviously a, a gain for Ukraine when, uh, when Russia's leadership looks increasingly shaky and divided. So in that sense, if I, were, uh, if I were Mr. Zelensky, I would derive a certain amount of satisfaction from this. Dr. Jack Cunningham was with us, Ph.D. program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Those, are in the, those of us that are in the media and have been there for a while, uh, obviously it's changing greatly, but this comes as a quite a surprise. Uh, Nordstar Capital, which owns the Toronto Star and Metroland Media, including the Hamilton Spectator, is looking to merge with Post Media, which owned the Sun newspaper chain and various other uh, outlets like the Calgary Herald and such, but including the Toronto Sun. So, yes, theoretically, the Sun and the Star are joining think about that. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thanks very much. Are you surprised at this, Ian, considering where uh, the industry is, or uh, is this left joining right, right joining left? I'm not surprised, and I'm not trying to sound prescient. The uh, the economics, the finances, if you want to use those words, of the media industry are are abysmal, and I mean the print industry especially. So, um, less so radio um, uh, for a bunch of reasons I won't go into because we're talking about print media. Uh, but I think, and I've been following this for a long time. Full disclosure: I've been describing. Uh, pre- uh, prescribing, subscribing, excuse me, for years uh, to the Globe and Mail and the National Post and the Toronto Star. And I'm a devout reader of newspapers since the time I was a boy because it was drilled into my head by my parents who made us read the papers. 
And we were, you know, when I was eight or nine or 10 years old. So I've been a newspaper reader, and veteran reader. And uh, so this is not something I'm celebrating and what I'm about to say. It's going to be blunt, but it's not something I'm saying, oh, whoopee, this is great news. I think it's it's very sad. Um, we are what we're witnessing is uh, the disruption, the complete digital disruption of uh, media and many other industries, too. But we're not talking about other industries. We're just talking right now about this industry. And this was forecast, uh, predicted brilliantly by Professor Negroponte, a professor at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, way back in 1995. He wrote a book called Being Digital, not going digital. And that name, Negroponte, may not mean anything to anybody, but if I said to you, Wired Magazine, everyone would say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know all about that. He founded Wired Magazine. And in this book, Being Digital, he predicted that the, in the next 20 years was going to see disruptions of industries all over the place, starting with broadcasting and retailing. In fact, it was somebody by the name, an unknown guy back then, called Jeff Bezos, who was so overwhelmed, so struck by this book being digital, he went out and founded a company I think everyone knows. It's called Amazon. But mm. in the book by Nicholas Negroponte, what he was doing was showing what being digital means when you can digitize all information, financial information, banking information, newspapers, magazines, broadcasting, and it just completely disrupts and what's happened, as we all know, is the advertisers have fled the print media and gone to online, not only to Facebook, not only to Google, but online, period. And uh, and and the print media have lost a, a lot, a huge amount of revenue. So the glory days are gone. The golden days are gone. And that in parallel with the trend that young people and I'm not going to tell you young people don't read. They, they do. It's a mm -hmm. cheap shot to say young people don't read. I talk to my students all the time about this subject, but they don't read the traditional print media yeah. called Globe, called Star, called Post. They read inveterately. My students and young people everywhere are highly literate. Yeah. It's just not that they're not reading what was traditionally read by people. And so, sadly, uh, this is we're, we're living through the end of an era of the prime traditional broadcasting. The Prime Minister says the competition watchdog, sh uh, competition watchdog should look over any pr proposed merger between these two. That seems kind of funny, considering this has been going on uh, almost to this pace for years now. Why would yeah. this merger all of a sudden get his attention? I, 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 I want to be very careful because I don't want to sound like I'm just taking cheap shots at the Prime Minister, okay? But those kinds of comments, it's not that they're not helpful. I couldn't care less. It shows that he has not a clue. Yeah. Not a clue of these transformations, these disruptive innovations and the disruption it's causing, not just for a few capitalists who are, are getting losing their investments. Well, I'm not shedding crocodile tears over that. That's the nature of risk. You invest in an industry or a business, I should say, and it goes down the toilet. Well, that, that's the that's the risk you take when you're a capitalist. I'm talking about the larger disruptions that are going on in society. We're seeing with the post office. Yep. The post office's annual deficit is up to two and a half billion. It is absolutely unsustainable. I know there's people listening will get very angry at that and really think that, oh, no, we're all going to start writing letters to mom and dad and grandma. Uh, we're going to go return <laughs> back to letter writing. No, we are not. 
We're not bringing back blockbuster video. We're not bringing back milk delivered to the door like in the mm. 1930s. We are going over the next 10 to 20 years. We're, we won't recognize this country or any modern country in 15 years. It'll be so profoundly different in the way we live. And this is just one aspect of these profound social disruptions and transformations. Print media is dying before our eyes, and I think it will continue. Sadly, very sadly. Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, the star and the sun merging, basically, uh, Post Media and Torstar. Uh, Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Many Canadians are not ready for a citizenship test, according to a new Leger poll. Now, if you're applying for Canadian citizenship, you have to go through a test and and see how much you know about the history of Canada, geography, economy, government, laws, symbols, that sort of thing. And I remember this as a kid um, because my mother was an immigrant and came here for the second time, actually. They came here twice, uh, but came the second time right after the Second World War with nothing like the, but the clothes on their backs and, uh, you know, whatever they had in a little suitcase, as many, many, many immigrants did way back then and still do now. Uh, and I remember my mother, uh, she was probably middle aged, so maybe in her 40s. We were kids, and she still wasn't a Canadian citizen. She was still a British subject. Uh, she was uh, born and raised in Scotland. So, um, you know, uh, she just never got around to it, whatever, whatever. So I, I remember very vividly her going to get her citizenship, I think just so my father would not call her a DP anymore, which meant displaced person. Uh, and she had to study for a test. And I remember her joking that she knew more about the country than we did. And, in fact, if you talk to many immigrants who come into the country, they are more enthusiastic and patriotic and know more about the country in many times than Canadians who've been here for generations. And maybe this is explaining what is uh, happening with the Leger poll. Uh, basically, in order to, uh, well, I'll read it. Leger found that only 23% uh, would pass the citizenship uh, ship test based on their answers to 10 randomly selected questions. They need to score at least 75% to pass, but the average score of the Canadians who were surveyed was only about 49%. People who wish to become a Canadian citizen need to answer 20 questions about citizens' rights, responsibilities, history, geography, economy, uh, government laws, etc. So uh, 23% would pass. The rest of us deported? To where? I'm not sure. Let's bring in uh, Steve Mossop, uh, Leger, Vice President on the West Coast and with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Are you surprised about this, Steve, or uh, or has the test just gotten harder? <laughs> no, I'm not surprised at all. And in fact, I have my own anecdotal story that you just shared with your listeners. And that is, you know, we had somebody in the office three weeks ago that just went through the test. She's a, a woman from Brazil, uh, about 30 years old, and she had to take the test. And I said, well, why don't you come into the, the team and, and read the tests and we'll see how many we can get. <laughs> and, you know, out of a sample of 20 people, we found ex almost exactly the same percentages. There was only one person that got uh 10 out of 10 right, and uh, more than half of us failed. So we thought that would be a pretty cool idea to take the, the results of this very small office function and take it to our national poll of over 1,500 Canadians and see how Canadians score. And lo and behold, uh, we found uh, very similar responses, and that's what you're, you just read out to your readers. How apropos as we come towards uh, Canada Day, how do you explain this? Is there an explanation? 
I think it is the, the case that we don't, you know, unlike our counterparts to the South, we are not as patriotic uh, as maybe we we should be. And we don't value the, the study of Canadian history and, and some of the questions that we pulled on. You know, we should know those questions. We should know them just by living here. And so I'm surprised, but I'm not really surprised. It's, it's uh, an expectation that we just don't take enough interest in this. Canada is a land of immigrants. You'd think that they would help bring up our average. You think they would, but it was a, a pretty clear results. And, and it wasn't one or two questions that were throwing people off. It was several key questions. You know, I can go through a couple of them and 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 read them to you. But it's uh, it's really a, a, a combination of many scores that made up the fail rate. Yeah. Give us an example here, Steve, because you, you say there is no real common denominator here or is there? No, like I said, there's no real trick questions. You know, a basic question, and this is one that people should know, is whose face is on the Canadian $10 bill? Uh, we made a change. I think the year was uh, 1998 that it was changed. And Viola Desmond is the correct answer. And then a number, uh, only 57% of Canadians got that right. And this is something that people have in their wallets on a daily basis. You think that we would take notice. Um, wow. You and, know, Steve, Steve, you're saying that. And immediately I said, John A. McDonald. And then, oh, I remembered exactly as you said that it had been changed. So is that not kind of a trick question? Because it's No, not, because it, John A. McDonald is not even on the list of potential answers. They've taken that out for that exact <laughs> oh, reason to make it oh, not a trick man. question. So it was multiple choice. It's, they are all multiple choice uh, questions. So oh, theoretically, man. you know, we should be able to score 25% if we answer it all C to, to each of them. Uh, that is, uh, so uh, wh what do you think the, the people who uh, are administering these tests are thinking? H how do we How do we digest this? I think it, part of the purpose of the, the poll that we did is to draw awareness to it. I mean, it is candidate day, so it is it, it's yeah. coming up and it's a time for reflection and think of all things that we value and trust in as Canadians. And, and this was really meant to be uh, not a wake up call, but just a reminder to Canadians that, hey, pay attention because this stuff is important. We should know. We should know how our country was formed. You know, here's here's the example. Another example question who established the first European settlements in Canada? Um, and the answer is the English, the Irish, the French and the Spanish. The correct answer is French. Uh, only 55 percent got it right. So, you know, we should pay attention to our history and 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 on some of the basic uh, tenets of the foundation of our Canada of Canada the way it is. Do you think we should make these tests uh, uh, available to those who are already citizens? Again, maybe Canada Day, give us all a quiz of something. Maybe make it like a Canadian heritage moment. Give us once a year one of these tests, 20 questions. Are you Canadian or not? Um, well, there used should to be, we, should we do a, a PR thing ads, on this? Uh, by the Dominion Institute that did exactly that, and they would showcase these little vignettes and stories of, of the past with the goal of educating Canadians and just drawing awareness to our history. So maybe that's maybe that's something that should be resurrected and somebody should do that again because it, it was useful at the time. Okay, let me go to the other extreme. Are we too busy canceling Canada? Devil's advocate. Well, that's uh, we do have a poll coming out tomorrow uh, and stay tuned for that. And maybe I'll come back on your show and talk about it. But it it basically looks at how proud are, are, are Canadians of Canada Day and to and to be Canadian. And I'll share one sort of tidbit from uh, from that poll that will release tomorrow morning. Uh, to what extent are you proud to be Canadian? Very proud, uh, only 46, and then somewhat proud, 34. So a total of 81. But you've got 16% who say that they're not proud. They're not proud citizens. And Wow. 
Yeah, so there are some interesting scores that are coming out of that. And, you know, there's lots of things that we're proud of our universal health care, our landscape, our freedom, our peaceful, safe society, our fellow Canadians, multiculturalism. Um, and then there are reasons why we're not proud. And I'll, I'll share uh, a couple of them with you along the same lines. The state of our healthcare system is number one. It's like, you know, this is something we should be proud of. But right now we've seen enough stories that mm. maybe it's not the case. There's inequalities in poverty. There's the rise of political extremism. There's our opioid problem. So there are there are some legitimate reasons why people have answered the question the way they did. Most Canadians not ready for a citizenship test, according to Leger, and wait for the release tomorrow on uh, how happy or proud Canadians are. Fascinating stuff, Steve. Steve Mossop with us, Leger, Vice President in the West. Thanks so much for taking the time. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.